Good morning, church family. It's really great to be able to be with you this morning to read these two beautiful psalms. I'll be reading Psalm 123 and Psalm 124. Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. For we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud and much contempt from the arrogant. And now Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Thanks be to the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. My name is Jonathan Hoffman. I want to welcome you wherever you're joining us from. Maybe it's the comfort of your own lounge room. Maybe you're outside on a walk today. Uh, maybe you're viewing this, catching this later this evening. Uh, it's a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning here in Sydney. Uh, we're still in the midst of lockdown, but we're almost, almost, Lord willing, almost free. Uh, we are so glad that you can join us. We're working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, and this morning we'll be looking at Psalms 123 and 124 uh, as we look up for mercy. Uh, the premise of this series is that salvation is a journey which began uh, in a far-off place, but it finishes or terminates ultimately in the presence of God. And this journey that terminates in the presence of God is a journey that each of us is looking to make. Uh, as I don't know how you're navigating this lockdown, but as, as we uh, face these challenging times together, this series is meant to inspire our faith through the speaking or the singing, as it were, of hope. Now, I was reminded this week that oftentimes in the Psalms, we don't actually see uh, hope. Sometimes we get psalms like Psalms 123, which feel quite heavy. And sometimes we get psalms like Psalm 124, which feel wonderfully celebratory. But the comfort to us in all of this is that God is with us no matter the circumstance. Uh, I invite you now to pray with me as we prepare to look at his word together. Would you bow your heads wherever you are and pray with me? Father in heaven, we're grateful for the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through him. Father, you know the state of our hearts today, and we ask that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you, Jesus, that you have gone before us, 
And thank you, Father, that you've brought us into your household, adopted by your Son and his work on the cross. We thank you. In his name we ask these things. Amen. As I said, we're in a series in the Psalms of Ascent. The title of this series today is, excuse me, this sermon today is Looking Up for Mercy. Now, you may not realize it, but we are in the midst of a war for our attention. Your eyes are a commodity that the world wants and is paying for, actually, in ever-increasing rates. Why is that? And maybe you maybe feel this, this sort of pull for your attention. Uh, I suggest that this is because the world knows that if it can hold your eyes, it has a chance to capture your heart. Once the heart of a man or woman is captivated, they will almost give you anything that you ask for. If they can hold your eyes, they can capture your heart. And so it makes us ask, what holds our attention? Because whatever is holding our attention has an avenue to our hearts. It's an express lane to the core of who you are as a man or a woman or even a child. Uh, it was nearly 40 years ago this week that uh, the executive, the then executive of MTV, a man named Robert Pittman, was quoted in the Washington Post and the Philadelphia Inquirer in discussing uh, his television network, MTV, which was the new, newfangled idea of the time. Uh, he said this, he said, the strongest appeal you can make is emotional. If you get their emotions going, you can make them forget their logic. You've got them. At MTV, this is a direct quote, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds, we own them. <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, we're constructing a medium that is designed to capture the imaginations and the attentions of our young people so that we own them. <clears throat> the reasoning that is employed by Pittman here uh, which is nearly 40 years ago, uh, it's the same reasoning that's behind the innovative algorithms of TikTok. So if you, uh, if you consider, uh, if you look at this article from the Wall Street Journal, which came out on the 8th of September, uh, it says this, it's titled, How TikTok Serves Up Sex and Drug Videos to Minors. And listen to what they reported. TikTok only needs one important piece of information to figure out what a user wants. They only need one thing. They need to know the amount of time you linger over a piece of content. That's all. In other words, they only need to know how long you're watching. They need to know where your attention is. Every second you hesitate, the article says, or rewatch, the app tracks you. Through that one powerful signal, listen to this, this is, this is not me, this is secular media. Through that one powerful signal, TikTok can learn your most hidden interests and emotions and drive users of any age into deep rabbit holes of content. You see, the world understands this. What holds your attention has an avenue to your heart. It has an express lane to the things that matter most to you. Now, I'm not actually here to rail against TikTok or other social media platforms, uh, streaming services, advertisers. I actually don't think they're employing some deep, dark innovation. Uh, I think they're simply monetizing 
or profiting, maybe in some case weaponizing, a fundamental truth of humanity, and that is what the eyes linger over, the heart will soon desire. What the eyes linger over reflects and directs what the heart desires. Which leads to our one big question today. The big question we're looking at this morning is, how long will Jesus hold our attention? How long is Jesus gonna hold our attention? How long is Jesus gonna keep your attention? It's here in black and white print. It's here in the pixels of your screen that there is a battle going on for your eyes because they know if they can hold your eyes, they can capture your heart. And it begs the question, how long are we going to be attentive and attuned to Jesus? You may have found yourself wandering, straying. Maybe like me, you pick up your Bible some days and you think, this isn't really what I wanna be looking at right now. You hear that Christian song come on the radio and you think, nah, I'm just not feeling it right now. Click. Maybe Sunday morning right now is sort of your penance for what you feel like you need to make up for during the week. Jesus, if I give you an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, well then, then I'm right, I'm set for the week. But the one big truth is that Jesus only captivates a heart that yearns for God's mercy. If you don't desire God's mercy, Jesus will not offer you anything of value. Eventually he's going to be too old, too tired, too demanding, too distant, too inscrutable, too hard to comprehend that Jesus will lose, lose his appeal for us. Jesus only captivates a heart that yearns for God's mercy. Now, behind this is the question of how are we going to sort of keep our attention on Christ? And this is where faith comes in. And these Psalms do a wonderful job of bringing out for us the nature of faith and and where it resides, where, where it dwells, what sort of holds it together. And so as we come to these Psalms, We need to notice here that faith, this is the one big reason, faith finds mercy in the dual reality of humility and hope. If your heart craves mercy, faith will help you to find it, and where it's found is is in these two realities that don't often go together, humility and hope. You see, oftentimes if we lean too much into humility, we feel despair and and we begin to to feel like we're just a worm and we're nothing and and nothing is ever going to be positive. Why would anyone care? Why would God love me? Why would my life change? Yada, yada, yada. If we lean too far into hope, it's very easy to become self-confident and begin to think, well, actually I deserve all this and you know what? The good that's gonna come to me is what I had owed to me. But there is a beautiful space where mercy lives in this dual reality of humility and hope. And faith will find mercy there. Yesterday I thankfully remembered at the last minute that if I wanted to keep driving, I needed to go get an eye test. So I saw more people than I have seen in the last three weeks sitting in Specsavers yesterday. 
And I'm sitting in Specsavers, and, and if you've been to an eye test recently, it's really quite advanced. I hadn't been recently, and I was like, wow, this is really impressive. And the whole premise behind the eye test is, okay, we're going to put this on. We, what do you see? One or two, three or four, you know, five, six, which, you know, and they just keep dropping things in front of your eyes and saying, do you see it now? Do you see it now? Is that clear? Is that clear? In the spiritual reality, you can only see mercy when your field of vision is bounded by humility and hope. Humility and hope. Our outline this morning, as we come to Psalm 123, we see here that they focus our faith on Jesus by framing life's extremes through the lens of God's mercy. And so these pilgrim songs, they will teach us how faith sees past obstructions to find its way to mercy in Jesus. The picture here is that faith, faith enables us to see and to focus on God's mercy. And if you're looking long enough, you will eventually, through faith, meet mercy in Jesus Christ. But there's two obstacles. The first obstacle is in Psalm 123, and here it's an obstacle of suffering. And so we're gonna see how faith seeks mercy in the midst of suffering. The second obstacle comes in Psalm 124, and it's not really put as an obstacle, but you can very easily see how it could get there. And here we see how faith sees mercy in the midst of success. If Psalm 123 pictures of people in suffering who are crying out, Psalm 124 pictures of people who have experienced relief. And here the threat is the opposite. It's a threat of forgetfulness, a, a threat of losing touch with our position. And we'll come back at the end of Philippians chapter two to consider how faith meets mercy in Jesus Christ. As we come to Psalm 123, I want you to see that faith has eyes that seek mercy. Faith has eyes that seek mercy because they know God is an attentive master who rules over all. Just a few notes on the context here, Psalm 123. It is an exasperated yet a patient lament to the Lord for mercy because quite simply these people cannot take it anymore. It, it's a very short psalm, but it's a sublime psalm because it's balanced quite evenly. Verses one and two express the plea, the desire, the cry for help. Verses three and four express the reason, the grounding for help. And here we see the, the thing that's obstructing faith, the, the thing that can, can get in the way of faith is this experience of contempt. Contempt is being treated in such a way as you have no weight. Your existence, be that your feelings, your emotions, your priorities, your desires, these things don't matter. And so to treat somebody with contempt is, is to really almost act as if they don't even exist. For someone to exalt themselves in such a way that is so much higher over you, they are so superior to you, why would you even bother existing in the same space that they do? The focus of this psalm as it begins is on the where and on the how of where God's people will look. The where and the how of where they'll look. Now, some scholars have posited that the background of this psalm is Nehemiah and return of the exiles. 
If you haven't been in the book of Nehemiah in a while, it was a time when God had said he would bring his people back to the land of Israel after they'd been exiled. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king in Persia, and he is overcome with the state of disrepair of the walls of Jerusalem. And as he hears the report, he finds strength in prayer and, and asks the king if he can return. The king grants his request, and we might be tempted to read Nehemiah and think, yes, sweet, this is gonna be smooth sailing. God has given the king favor to let Nehemiah go. Excuse me, given Nehemiah favor through the king to let him go. But when we come to the actual reality on the ground in Israel, we see that the people of God who were trying to rebuild the walls, it was not a happy experience. They were being laughed at, mocked at, threatened, betrayed by all the people around them. And many suggest that this experience is behind this psalm. And the theme we need to track in the midst of all this is this idea of being slaves in the master's house. I want you to look now with me at the text of Psalm 123. I've put on the screen some, uh, this is the NIV. I've made some notations, excuse my little uh, squirrely, squiggly lines there. Uh, Psalm 123, a psalm of a sense, it reads this. Uh, literally it says, to you, to you I lift up my eyes, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of the slave look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the female slave look to the hand of her mistress. This is just a male and female counterpart. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Notice the delay. Notice the buildup, the focus on eyes. I lift my eyes up. This is the same way that Psalm 121 started. It said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And that psalm was just this crashing wave after wave, this cascading waterfall of assurance of God's provision and protection. This psalm starts with the same words, but it has a very different feel. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. We don't know what he wants yet, but the emphasis is on how he's looking. Verse two, as the eyes of a slave look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes, we don't know what he's asking for, you, for, for yet from the Lord, but we know that the psalmist wants us to understand how intensely focused the people of God are upon the throne of God. Many of us, gratefully, have little to no experience being in a slave culture. But in a culture like we have in the ancient world, it was common for a household to be composed of not just wives and husbands and children, but other people, concubines, manservants, maidservants. And these servants were considered property of the master. And it can be a bit jarring as we read this psalm to say, why would we look to the Lord as a slave looks to the hand of the master? The picture here is, is not one of terror, but one of longing. It's a desire to see the master of the household act. You know, I've never been into Buckingham Palace, but when I had the opportunity to visit 
the UK a couple of years ago. It was amazing to me to see all the fanfare around the palace. I'm an American. I know. Don't hold it against me. It's just a bit strange to us. We, we don't quite get it. And the picture that you get is that what the monarch says goes. I can imagine Queen Elizabeth, if she's even looking in another direction and says to the servant, there, there's one, two, three, I don't know how many people running. Now we don't call them servants now, we call them employees and staff. But the idea is that in the household of the ruler, the highest authority, all they have to do is, is simply move a finger, give a look, give a direction, and people will run and do their bidding. But here, they're looking at the master not, not necessarily for their next instruction, but for mercy. The heart of this passage is delayed till the very middle, and it's the hinge point of this psalm. Our eyes look up to you who are enthroned in heaven as the eyes of a slave look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to you, O Lord. What are you looking for till you show us mercy? Lord, we need mercy. Recently around the dinner table, my wife was trying to explain to our kids the concept of mercy. And Joanna, our minister of community life, had a great definition. She said, mercy, mercy means not getting what you did deserve. It means coming in, rescuing you, rescuing from wrath, rescuing from judgment. But here, there isn't a sense that the judgment is from the Lord. It's, it's judgment from other people. Verses three and four, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Note the repetition. When you see something twice it, it, in scripture repeated, have mercy on us, Yahweh, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule or ridicule from, uh, excuse me, no end of ridicule from the arrogant or contempt from the crowd. There's that word again. Now the NIV has given us a very kind of pedestrian translation of that there. We have endured no end. It, it sounds like you've been on a really long walk and you just can't go another step. And, and there's, there's a sense in which, which that fits. But probably the better sense is, to the, is the idea that, that you are satisfied and now you're being asked to take on more. In America, we celebrate Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving, yeah, this big meal, you're all sitting around the table, we're about to go into the tryptophan coma from eating all the turkey. And, and, and afterwards, someone always says, hey, okay, we're we ready to have the pies now? You know, a bit of pumpkin pie, a bit of apple pie. And, and you just look and you just say, I've, I've had enough. I'm full. I couldn't fit another thing in. <laughs> but here, the picture of satisfaction is not a happy one. Because the psalmist speaking for the community, he says, we have been gorged on contempt. We can't have another mouthful. We can't have another bite. 
We don't know where to put it. We don't know what to do with it. We have had enough of contempt. Literally, we have been filled to the brim. Our capacity is full. We have had so much ridicule from arrogant and proud people. Lord, have mercy on us. You ever feel this way as a church? I'm just, just tired. I'm, I'm tired of, of the condescension. I'm tired of being dismissed. I'm tired of not having a voice. I'm tired of being rejected. Derek Kidner says about contempt, he says, other things can bruise, but contempt is cold steel. It goes deeper into the spirit than any other form of rejection. Tucker and Grant say the real issue here is shame, but even more, this kind of shame makes one feel powerless in the face of other people. No voice, no compassion. The one everybody picks on. And there's two temptations in the midst of enduring this kind of ingesting of of vitriol and ridicule and contempt. There's two things we are often tempted to do. One is to lash back and to say, I'm not gonna stand for that. And we raise the banner and rally the flag and and, and put up the defenses and say, we're not gonna take that anymore. The other temptation is to accommodate. If you can't beat them, join them. So many kids get bullied at school. And many of them become bullies themselves because they can't think of another way to survive. And so it's easier to become like them than it it is to, to continue to endure. But note the posture of faith. It is seeking mercy in the midst of this. There's a recognition that they don't need human help. Again, back to Kidner. The psalmist's words, soaring above his circumstances, set his troubles in a context large enough to contain them. Wow, that's important. His words, soaring above his circumstances, set his troubles in a context large enough to contain them. Maybe you need to do that this week. Maybe you need to take a step back and realize my choices are not simply roll over and die or take up my weapons to fight. But maybe, maybe the Lord is asking you to fix your eyes and laser focus on him and to seek his mercy. Note the positive expectation until, until you show us mercy, until he shows us mercy. It's not so that you would show us mercy. Lord, I'm, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you so that you know that I need mercy. No, it's not, it's not that. It's not, I'm looking to you as a servant so that I get mercy, as if I can earn your favor. No, no, no. I'm looking to you until you show me mercy. Until there's an expectation, faith has a positive expectation and understanding that God will intervene on behalf of his servants. This is extremely important. Behind 
the surface words of this psalm is the fabric of a household where if God's servants are slandered, God himself is slandered. In the relationship of a servant or a slave in the household, it was the master's responsibility to take care of the servant. The slaves had no authority. They had no, they had no recourse to defend themselves. Everything was left up to the master. Maybe God's trying to remind you this week that everything is being left up to him. And the Spirit of God may be nudging you to say, just keep looking to the throne. Just keep focusing on God. Look to the master. Don't look around. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at what resources you have. Look to the master. Wait for his mercy to vindicate you. You do not need to vindicate yourself. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot raise yourself. But the master can. And all those who are called by his name will be vindicated. Paul would speak of the glory of adoption in Galatians chapter four when he said that through faith we've been brought into the household of God. The work of Christ accomplished this, this vast ingathering and it's through faith that we are made sons and daughters of the king. Children, interestingly enough, also had no rights. Until a child came of age, they were effectively the same status of a slave. But we need to keep moving. <clears throat> Here in Psalm 123, it's a faith that seeks mercy, and so we see that we endure contempt by keeping our eyes on the master, trusting in his timely care. Secondly, we're going to see how faith sees mercy. So the first one was how faith seeks mercy. It's looking for mercy. Here in the second one, Psalm 124, we look at how faith sees mercy. You have to observe it, track it in the midst of success. And this is challenging because in the midst of success, we really like to use that as an opportunity to boost our ego. So here we learn that faith sees mercy in the midst of success because we know that we contribute nothing to our own salvation. In terms of the context, note here, first of all, Psalm 124 is a corporate call to praise that celebrates God's name for his merciful, dramatic deliverance, for our merciful, excuse me, and dramatic deliverance. It's a celebration of the name of God. It's a corporate psalm. It's beautiful that we're looking at this psalm on Thanksgiving Sunday because it's a call for everybody to celebrate. In terms of the structure, the cause for praise is stated in verses one to five, and then the celebration kicks off really and truly in verses six to eight. The faith blocker here, the thing that might get in the way of you and I trusting the Lord is complacency. It's the feeling of, well, I've arrived now. What else is there? It's the feeling of, I don't need God. I may have told you this story before. A friend of mine became very successful in the financial world. And he walked into his pastor's office. He's been a believer since, since he was a young man. Walked into his pastor's office and he said, Pastor, I got a problem. The pastor said, what is it? 
He said, I don't see why I need God anymore. Everything that I want, I can get. I have a wife, I have children, I have a family. I wanted those things, I have them now. I have a house that's great and large. I have, I have a bank account that's full. I, I don't even have to work 40 hours a week. I, I, I can really leverage the money I already have to work for me, and so I don't really need to be doing anything. And I can't see what on earth I need God for, but I know it's a problem. It's a picture of the threat of complacency. Here the focus is on the imminent disaster that is pictured in vivid metaphors. There's a series of metaphors in verses two, three, four. Sorry, excuse me, three, four, and five. And these continue in verses six to eight. Many say here the background is David, excuse me, David in the Amalekites in 2 Samuel chapter five. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll read how Saul was killed, and after Saul's death, King David was pursued hotly. His enemies saw an opportunity to take him down. And the theme that comes out of this is joy in escaping from certain death. Alexander McLaren says of this psalm that one thought that runs through it all is that the sole actor in their deliverance has been Jehovah. (laughs) It's the anglicized from the Latinized version of Yahweh. (laughs) In other words, the only one who's responsible for the deliverance is God. That's the theme, that's the thread that pulls this together. Would you look with me? Note, first of all, the repetition at the outset. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say. If the Lord had not been on our side, This is what's commonly referred to as a step parallelism. The thought begins, but then a step is taken back so that the thought can advance with even more force. A condition is set out. If the Lord had not been on our side, and it ought to make us wonder, where would we be if the Lord was not on our side? Where would you be if God was not in your life? If your answer to that question is, well, I'd be exactly where I am right now, can I tell you, you've, you either don't know the Lord or you've vastly, vastly underestimated what he's doing in your life. Here, the picture is that one person is leading the congregation in singing, and so they begin by saying, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, and then they all were meant to respond, if the Lord had not been on our side. The picture is there is a conflict going on, and in the midst of the conflict, they were under threat, save for the fact that God was wearing their jersey, (laughs) that God was on their team, that God was allied with them. That, that was the definitive and decisive factor. Notice what they expect would have happened. It's a, it's a cascade of metaphors here again. They would have swallowed us alive. The picture here is, is just a mouth, just consuming. They would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. Kidner points out in his commentary that this, this kind of attack is, it's not, merely, it's not merely looking at the people of God and saying, you know, We could really do with a bit more territory. 
This isn't collateral damage. This is personal vendetta. The enemies of God's people here seek to devour them. It's a similar language that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he talks about the devil, the way like a lion. He just sort of walks around and stalks the perimeter. His desire is to destroy the people of God, to eat them alive. When their anger flared against us, Verse four, the flood would have engulfed us. Here the picture is similar to what Isaiah uses in describing the Assyrian army that was invading. It's, it, it's an accumulation of, of forces and opposition that's so great that it just floods and damages everything. We know a bit about that in the Hawkesbury, don't we? The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept us away. The raging waters But this all issues in praise. If the Lord had not been on our side, all these things would have happened. And then here, just bursting forth, they can't contain it anymore. Praise be to the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Have you ever looked at your circumstances, looked at your life, looked at your soul in the darkness of your heart and, and, and just come to your wit's end and realize I do not have a way out of this. I'm cooked. I'm helpless. And, and in that moment, the Lord sweeping in with his mercy, with his reassurance, with his love, gathering you up and saying, don't fret, child, I have you. And all you can do is sit back and marvel and say, if God wasn't for me, if God didn't love me, I'd be gone. And, and the only thing left to say is, praise the Lord. Praise be to Yahweh. Praise be to Jesus Christ. He has not let us be torn by their teeth. Verse seven, we've escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. I know you're not supposed to play favorites with the text, but this, this image is my favorite in this text. The psalmist says, we were caught. We're like a bird, and what a fitting metaphor for the human soul, right? Capable of soaring and beautiful, you know, capable of beauty, but, but totally fragile and and. and frittering and fluttering around. Here this bird is caught and, and, and the psalmist says, that's what we were. We were caught in the snare, but we have escaped. But look at the nature of this escape. It's not like we just got out of the snare, we just got out of the cage. He doesn't say we, we wriggled our way through. You know, we found a hole in the snare and we sort of wormed our way out. No, the snare has been broken. There's a fowler out there trying to catch this bird. And someone else comes along, finds the bird in the net, rips the net, breaks the snare, and the bird goes free. Israel says that's a picture of what God's done for us. The snare has been broken and we've escaped.
Now we're soaring. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, you only need to know a name. You only need to know the name. If you know the name, if you know Jesus Christ, as Peter would say, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ. That's why it's him we preach. It's him we proclaim. That's why he is our helper. And here they are soaring as a people, basking in the freedom and the liberty and the new life. You could only imagine them thinking, you know, I'm pretty, a pretty clever bird. Look how high I can fly. Sometimes as Christians, we start flying around and we think, you know, man, I'm a really good flyer. I'm going to soar over here. I'm going to soar over there. And we forget. We forget that before we knew Christ, before he intervened in our lives, before the Spirit of God came to indwell us, that we couldn't fly, that we were grounded, that we were bound in a snare, and our freedom came through the breaking of the snare. So our liberty as Christians comes through the removal of the curse by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus, though he knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, I like what McLaren has to say here. He says, thanksgiving for answered petitions should be as persistent as the petitions were. <laughs> Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, help me. Help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. We get out of it. Whew. Oh, that was nice. Great. Oh, what time's the footy on? <laughs> Oh, that was good. Whew. All right, the Lord got me out of that. All right, what else do I have to worry about now? <laughs> he goes on to say, it must be a shallow gratitude which can be all poured out at one gush. <laughs> if, if, we, if we expend all our gratefulness to the Lord in just sort of one, thank you, Lord. Thanks for that. Our gratitude's pretty shallow, isn't it? <laughs> this is why Paul would say in Romans 12, chapter one, he would say, in view of God's mercy, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. It's the exact opposite. The response to the mercy of God is not a momentary utterance of thank you. The response to the mercy of God is a whole life offering. It's a going back to the one and saying, I've been freed, but I freely give myself to you. You see, faith has eyes that see that mercy. Even after the victories come, even after the, even after the deliverance. So brothers and sisters, we will overcome complacency by celebrating God's deliverance and our merciful escape. Oh, just take five minutes this week and contemplate. Just say, how am I gonna answer those words if the Lord hadn't been on my side? 
Just, just let those words reverberate through your mind this week. If the Lord wasn't on my side, this psalm feels like the Old Testament equivalent of Romans chapter eight. Where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's gonna separate us from the love of God? So in these two Psalms, we sort of have the two ends of human experience. We have people who are, who are being gorged on being dismissed and who, who are held so low, they're being forced down, being force-fed the contempt of arrogant people, and yet their faith still has hope. And here in Psalm 124, the people have been freed. They've experienced the mercy. They've experienced the relief. But faith in the midst of, of, of hope realized remembers humility and attributes all the glory and the praise to the Lord. But what I really want you to see is how faith actually meets mercy in Jesus Christ. Because when we view life through a lens of mercy, we can't help but see Jesus. There's two dominant pictures in these Psalms. We've talked about the bird in Psalm 124, and we talked about the slaves and the masters in Psalm 123. If we ask ourselves, where is Christ in this, we can quite quickly go to Psalm 124 and say, well, Christ is the one who, who set us free. And we go to Psalm 123 and we can say, but, but where is Jesus? And here, folks, I just want to remind you of the gospel. In terms of Psalm 123, the gospel is that the Lord got off his throne and he became a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We can read Psalm 123 and think, man, it stinks to be a slave of God. How is this a picture of Christian freedom? Can I tell you, this is what the Son became for us. The Son of God, with laser focus, Enduring the ridicule of the very people he came to save as the high priest spat on him, as the soldiers mocked him, as other people slapped him, as Herod passed him around, as Pilate treated him like some sort of curiosity. In the midst of all of this, Jesus Christ did not break faith. He is the pioneer and the author of our faith because he had a laser focus on the throne of God and he said, I lift my eyes to you, Father, and I will wait. I will wait. And wait he did. He waited even in the ground. This is the gospel. And in fact, you cannot even have Psalm 124 if you don't have Psalm 123. The gospel is that God got off his throne in the person of his son, and he came and he stood with us. He endured contempt. He shielded us from all of it, and he ultimately took the price for everyone. 
so that when we get to Psalm 124, we can know for certain the Lord is on our side. You see? It's not for the Christian, maybe the Lord is on my side. No, for the Christian, it's the Lord is on our side. This is the gospel in Jesus Christ. He came and stood with us. He took on flesh. He became like us. And in so doing, in this beautiful mixing of the metaphors, the same one who stood with us is the one who broke the snare, but he broke the snare by becoming a servant. A servant who humbled himself not just before the Father, but before his enemies, before people who reviled him and hated him, people who despised and mocked him. You wanna talk about being rejected? You wanna talk about not being treated with respect? How much disrespect did the Son of God wear as he hung on the cross? If to treat somebody with contempt is to be treated lightly, to not be, be given their proper standing, how much contempt was force-fed down the throat of Christ as he's crying out on the cross, my Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? As he hears in his ears, not the sweet reassurance, but he hears the mocking voices, if you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. I dare say there is no one who has ever endured more contempt than the Son of God. And he still endures it today. You see, we treat him with contempt, brothers and sisters. When we look at our situation and we say, how am I gonna save myself? How am I gonna get out of this? How am I gonna fix me? We look at the sun and we say, you know, I see what you did over there, but it's not quite enough. No, no. We ought to be basking and soaring by the Spirit's power in the victory that Christ has won. This is the good news, brothers and sisters that the kingdom of God has arrived, that Christ brought it and he broke the opposing forces of evil and sin and death. And in breaking them, we too are free. Look what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, not only is just Christ the goal of our prayer, he himself also accompanies us in our prayer. The Lord knows what you're going through. He knows your highs and your lows. He knows the depth of pain and sorrow that you're in. It's not merely about going to God to, 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 to try to take hold of Christ. It's recognizing that Christ is interceding for us. He would go on to say somewhat boldly, as Bonhoeffer does, trust in God without Christ is empty and without certainty. It is only another form of self-trust. Think about that. If I can have a relationship with God that is not dependent on the work that Christ did, then I'm actually relying on myself. 
that kind of trust is really empty. Conversely, whoever knows that God has entered into our suffering and Jesus Christ himself may say with great confidence, thou art with me. We began by asking how, how can Jesus hold our attention? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you a truth you already know. Jesus captivates our hearts when we remember he is God's mercy and our help. You see, we need a living help. We need a real savior. We don't need an idea. We don't need another philosophy. We need someone to actually do the work. And the good news is, and what I'm here to announce today, is that Christ has done it. And as you and I do this, remember this, our hearts will be captivated. And so by way of application today, the encouragement to you is to abide in humility and hope. Humility is the reality that you are not adequate to save yourself. But hope is recognizing that God has loved you, that he has stood with you, that he has borne your sin, your failures, and that all your sin, past, present, future, has been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ, that God is not angry at you who are in Christ, that his wrath has been satisfied. And so as our heart tries to tries to jerk into these overcorrections. When we're getting squashed down, our heart wants to, wants to jump into pride and say, no, 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 I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna arc my back up and I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna stand for this anymore. The spirit will restrain you and say, remember. Remember that you're a child of God because of his mercy. And that as a child of God, he is the one who will vindicate you. He is the one who will lift you. And conversely, when we are thrown in the other direction and our, and our heart's knee-jerk reaction is, is to despair, is to say, what's the point of it all? Why, why even bother believing anymore? Why even bother trusting God anymore? Who, is, is he really even there? Why don't you just walk away and take care of yourself? Why don't you just end it? Why don't you just, just finish it off? And despair tempts you into that. Hope says, no, 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 no. Christ's work is finished. And what we see now is not the full measure of what will be. But even in the here and now, through the Spirit of God, we behold the wonders of eternal life. And so as we abide in humility and hope, the Spirit of God does a powerful work. We are he, he brings the power of revelation. He enables you to see and to understand the things of God. As Paul would tell the Corinthians, he would say, God gave you his spirit so that the spirit could teach you the mind of God. He would talk of his preaching. He'd say, we, we give spirit-given words. We teach spirit-taught words. And the goal and the result of all this is transformation. You see, God is doing a work. 
After that wonderful hymn in Philippians 2 about Christ being in very nature God, we're told God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Paul goes on to say, he says, therefore my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so it's simple. Let God do the things in your life that he's trying to do. Don't resist that. As the Spirit reveals God's will, the Spirit will also reveal Christ in you. And you will know his peace, and you will bear much fruit. I'll invite the band to come up as we finish this message. Without noting that the path to the throne, the path of exaltation, first came through suffering. And if that was our Lord's path, and he has trod that for us, so too can we expect that we will be with him in glory, even as we might endure contempt and suffering now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning, praise be to you. Lord, you have done it. And so, Lord, we now gladly respond in view of this mercy that we have. We gladly respond by giving ourselves to you. Lord, help us to see what that looks like. We rely on the work of your Holy Spirit to shape us into your likeness so that we would bring glory to God the Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen.